at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone back to another episode of the Curiosity Habit and today is so exciting for me to have not only a colleague uh, and a great researcher and a scholar but someone that I also regard as a friend and a big mentor in my career since I joined Western, Dr. Kathy Hibbert. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well thank you so much for having me. So Kathy is a professor and also the Associate Dean Teacher Education at the Faculty of Education at Western. Am I Am I right? Am I missing something? No, you are quite, quite right. Yeah, she has a very interesting path. So we're hoping <laughs> that we get to some of those stories as we have the conversation. I usually start this uh, conversation by asking people to share with us something or to share about you without telling us about your research. However, for today, I know, and you told me this story a long time ago, and it's a story that you have in, in your website. There is a, a story with Vietnam that kind of ignited your passion about teaching. And I was wondering if you could share with us that piece, like what's the story behind your passion for teaching that links Vietnam to Canada, to who you are now? Thank you. Um, it's funny because I, I did not realize at the time that this unfolded in my life, uh, the impact that it was having on me and would continue to have on me throughout my, my life. Um, but when I was about 11, um, we experienced the fall of Saigon and um, we had Vietnamese refugees that were commonly known in those days as boat people who uh, were fleeing the country and looking for places to uh, take refuge. And my parents, along with a couple of other uh, families in our community, um, agreed to take these uh, family, this one family in particular, it was uh, five adults and one child. And um, the five adults were a married couple and uh, cousins and a friend. And then an eight-year-old boy was thrown on the boat at the last minute by his desperate parents. So I grew up in rural Ontario. Um, we did have diversity when I think back on it now as an adult in the, in the sense that we had uh, a large population of German and Dutch farmers that lived on our road, but certainly not the visual um, diversity and certainly uh, not in the way that people coming from Vietnam uh, brought to our lives. So this young family came to stay with us while we worked to get them a, a home and, and get them established. And we thought that this was amazing. I mean, my, my father, who was, um, both of my parents were uneducated in the formal sense. They had grade 10 education, but very educated in, in terms of uh, reading and promoting education. And my dad had gone to local auctions when the two-room schoolhouses that I actually started in were closed and amalgamated into a larger school. Um, he went around to all of those old schools and he bought blackboards and desks and all kinds of books. And so I think there was no way I was either going to be a teacher or a librarian. <laughs> um, there were four of us in our family, uh, four children, and I was the second oldest and I was able to um, teach my younger siblings uh, in particular and play teacher. So a whole new family who didn't speak English was like a gift to me because I was very excited to practice my skills and I had all of these books and I thought I will teach these people English. And I did, I said about that and we had a lot of fun playing together. And um, what I didn't realize was what they were going to teach me. And as soon as they had enough English that we could communicate with one another, we started to learn about the journey that they had taken to get to Canada and the horrors that were involved um, and uh, some of the, the strife that they had left, which 
you know, in those days, which would have been in the early 70s, was um, something that we couldn't even imagine. We certainly weren't getting that kind of detail in our, our media at the time. Um, and so I often look at, at that as being such a pivotal moment because I may have taught them to read the word, as Frere says, but they taught me how to read the world um, as a young person who had no prior experience to engaging so closely with uh, such a, a very different culture. And yes, I took that experience into my classroom teaching when I would continue to uh, meet new refugees to our country or students who came into our schools uh, from families that were um, not English speakers as their first language. And I remember thinking at the time how um, we lacked materials to use for them. So if I had a, a young person come into a grade six or seven classroom, for example, but the reading level that I needed to start with was so um, uh, primary, uh, I didn't have anything. I had to make all of my own materials to work with that person so that it, it was at a level that met his intellectual development, um, but also stayed with his language development. Um, and that was just one issue. Of course, we had no materials that represented anything that looked like what he had come from or that represented him in any way, you know, where he could see himself. Um, and so that was something that, you know, as a, a young teacher working in the system, I started to question. And I certainly wasn't alone. Uh, we saw such a large group of um uh, immigrants come into Canada in, in those uh, ensuing 40 years that um, we've seen a real growth in dual language books, for example, and materials to, to meet their needs. But we also learned a lot more about how we have to think about literacy development in the first language so that we can build those bridges into the second language, right? And, and old thinking had... Um, not understood that it it really takes about seven years for uh, students coming into a second language situation to to make the shift from first receiving and, and understanding you think about your toddler um, they often can understand what you're telling them to do long before they can speak the words or um, express their own thinking in a language we can comprehend. Um, and, uh, and then of course, writing is the last thing to develop in most people. So all of that was really instrumental in my uh, professional career. There was something that you wrote in, in your summary, your website, that got me thinking about special education. And this kind of, you were, I don't know if it was surprised or you were curious to see how most of the immigrant kids ended up in special education despite not really having disabilities, per That's se. That's right. That's it's right. Kind of the, the language gives a perception that the person is behind, mm -hmm. but it's not really. So how, how does that impact your, your teaching at the moment? And then you moved into a PhD. Is it connected? Um, not specifically, um, but I would say that it, it's been a, a part of an evolution in thinking, not just for me, but in education um, more broadly, um, that, you know, the tools that we have for assessing children who may be considered to be behind um, were not sophisticated enough to be culturally sensitive. Um, so they were, you know, viewing through what we call a deficit lens, right? Um, they were more focused on looking at what a child was not doing than what uh, capacities, abilities that they may have had that were not able to be um, picked up in these instruments, I suppose, um, because they didn't have the language. And so, you know, the only recourse that we had in those days um, was to identify them as special needs um, and place them in a special education um, placement. 
And in those, in my early teaching career, those placements were uh, withdrawal. So they went into a special classroom. Um, sometimes those students repeated a grade. Uh, a colleague of mine who was in my doctoral cohort, uh, Dr. Luigi Yanacci, uh, wrote about this because he experienced it firsthand as an Italian immigrant. And um, he did his master's work on that experience um, and then did his doctoral work on, you know, what's changed 25 years later. Um, and it was disappointing to see that little had changed, but things are changing now and have changed. Um, not enough. We have more work to do, but um, there we are seeing a shift. I think, you know, when, when we had students coming in so quickly, um, the primary focus in those days was, you know, trying to accommodate in Toronto, for example, you can have a class of 30 and 26 different first languages. It's a big job. And so sometimes you're, you're so taken up in the daily uh, tasks that you haven't got an opportunity to step back and, and try and see the bigger picture. But um, many scholars have been, have been working in that area for many, many years. Jim Cummins uh, is another scholar that's done a lot of work in this area. Um, so, you know, these kinds of questions just kept presenting themselves over and over and over. And you start to think about um, maybe the system is, is wrong, right? Maybe what we're using to assess and place um, is wrong or not culturally sensitive. Um, and so there was a big move to something called inclusive education, where students would no longer be placed in a special education environment, but would get support within the current classroom infrastructure. And I applaud that movement. One of the challenges to that movement is that um, many of the tools for identifying students that needed special education or specialist uh, support remained the same. Um, funding didn't change. So you might've had a classroom in a special ed context in the withdrawal system that saw one educator with eight children or 12 children. And when those students moved into the regular classroom, um, the numbers were regular classroom sizes. And, you know, a resource teacher's support was shared among many classes. So, you know, I, I remember as a special education resource teacher at one time, I had 70 students on a caseload. And, you know, you're limited in what you're able to do. A classroom teacher is limited in what they're able to do. So we've had to work really hard to find ways to um, think more about how we are categorizing ability, uh, what it means to serve students within a, special, within a uh, regular so-called uh, classroom setting. And, um, how to build on students' strengths and to see students from what we call an asset-oriented perspective rather than a deficit-oriented perspective. And we've seen a lot of growth in that area in the last decade or two. Right. So, and going back to the point that your, your path hasn't been straight, mm. after that, you ended up in profession, professional education, mm -hmm. working in radiology, and even working with the first responders of the Fukushima nuclear accident. What happened there? What was the, the switch <laughs> and the story behind that? <laughs> I get asked that question a lot. And I get asked, you know, when I entered teaching, did I ever imagine myself to be working with these uh, individuals? And the answer is absolutely not. Um, it, it never crossed my mind. Even when I came in to do doctoral work, um, the reason for that shift was because I was uh, program staff at my board at the time. I've been working at the school board for about 18 years. And the last five years, um, I was working as a program staff with responsibilities largely for gifted education, but, um, but also for, for curriculum. Uh, and we had amalgamated, uh, that was in, in the 90s, we amalgamated two boards um, and we were reviewing all of our processes when a new standardized curriculum was introduced. Um, and there are many, you know, positive things that come out of having a standardized curricula, but um, it was introduced all at once. And it uh, led the ministry to make a decision that 
the professional development processes that we engaged in in boards um, needed to change in order to introduce this new curricula. So prior to the introduction of the standardized curricula, um, boards would call me, or uh, sorry, schools would call me up, principals would call me up and say, listen, we have been looking at the results in our schools and working with our teachers and they've identified that we need some work in this area. So can you come and bring some materials and resources and work with our staff and, and help us develop um, stronger programming? Uh, so I would go into those schools and, and as you can imagine, the teachers were motivated and enthused to be working on an area of growth that they had identified, at least participated in identifying. That all changed with the introduction of the curricula um, because it, the ministry decided that um, all teachers had to participate in ministry-led and ministry-driven um, professional development, but they chose uh, an economically efficient model called train the trainer, which meant that 500 teachers at a time would be brought into these mass auditoriums. And we would stand on a stage and, uh, you know, if you can remember back to the day when we had overheads, we would have pre-produced uh, overheads and largely scripted material to walk them through and introduce this curricula, which to be honest, uh, was essentially something that we would introduce in the first year of our teacher education program. Um, and I would be looking out into the audience and I would see teachers who had a master's degree in literacy or a specialist in reading that um, I, I was only imagining how insulting this would be to a group of professionals to take them back to something so mundane. And to me, it was, it was the antithesis of teaching. And so that's what brought me into academia. That's what made me decide I needed to go back to school. I needed to step outside of the very busy uh, time that was taken up with all of this train the trainer and really reflect on what was happening to this beloved profession of mine. And so I came into the faculty of education with that as my, my goal to, to do some more learning. Um, and while I was doing my doctorate, uh, we were assigned some teaching. Um, one of the assignments that I had was to teach a reading specialist course face-to-face -face, um, in something called our Additional Qualifications for Teachers program. And I was all set to do that. Um, the night before the course started, uh, a teacher in our online program, which was new, we had started online about the year before I arrived, um, and we were one of the early adopters in the province, um, had emergency surgery. And so I was asked, would you teach both courses, one on site, one online? I had never done an online course before, taken one, let alone taught one, but I agreed because as this pandemic has shown us, we do what we need to in the moment. And so I jumped in and it was that experience of teaching in both contexts that opened my eyes to what was possible in an online world, what was necessary to build community, um, how the online world invited perspectives globally, um, because we had teachers in Ontario curriculum schools from all over the world who were teaching in that, or, or sorry, who were taking that course. Um, whereas the on-site course typically was constituted uh, largely by local uh, folks from uh, our local board. And so their perspectives tended to be whatever the current board um, uh, had been embracing. Um, so the conversations were very, very different in the two contexts. And that, that led me to be very interested in, in the potential for online learning. And this was in 2000. Um, so my focus for my doctoral studies uh, was virtual teaching and learning. Well, because we had been early adopters in those days, you can imagine we had about 120 courses with about 5,000 students per term um, fully online. And 
our additional qualifications courses are much more like a master's course than some of the CPD, for example. The teachers are heavily engaged in, in um, communicating with one another in these courses, writing papers and so on. Um, and Heart and Stroke Canada with uh, Vlad Heshinsky leading um, we're working on a project at the time and they said, you know, we're, we're interested in trying to educate the physicians in the ER um, satellite hospitals about ischemic stroke because often when a physician in an ER in one of these satellite hospitals gets a patient who's had a stroke, they send them to London. And they had uh, a very short window of time uh, that they could treat ischemic stroke and that window had too often closed by the time the patient arrived at the hospital. So they wanted um, to build some programs that would allow those docs to understand and diagnose and be able to intervene uh, before they ship them to London. And so we worked with fellows in that department to design and develop a couple of courses and then we went out and, and in-serviced all the ER physicians in the satellite hospitals. That was a project that I was working on. Adele Wolf was a colleague of mine at the time who was in a, a lead role and um, uh, that's where my first foray I suppose into medical education came about. Uh, shortly after that um, I was the director of continuing teacher education when I got a call from a fellow by the name of Dr. Rethi Chem. And Rethi was the chief and chair of what was then called uh, radiology and nuclear medicine. And they had decided to invest money in education. And so he called me up for a conversation about uh, faculty development, about research, medical education research, and um, about teaching and learning specifically. And he was really curious about, you know, what I thought about this virtual world and, and what we might do. And those conversations led to us establishing what we called a Center for Education in Medical Imaging that, that ran for about five years, I think, uh, prior to um, uh, Dr. Carol Herbert's uh, vision to establish um, what is now the Center for Education Research and Innovation at Schulich. And so uh, my work with Rethi um, produced three books that um, focused on radiology education. While other areas in medicine had done a lot of work in medical education, radiology had not. And that opened that door um, and then subsequently led to um, gosh, it's been maybe 15 years now, working with the Atom International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna, Austria, um, on all kinds of things. You, you can, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm still an educator. I'm a teacher who has the experiences I've just described. So when I go to Vienna, that's what I have to take. But they are a massive training organization that are responsible for um, bringing together a group of neuroscientists and physicists and nuclear radiologists and, you know, people with really high levels of expertise who have to then go and train others in countries all over the world with different languages, with very different background experiences in terms of education, with very, very different um, community needs. I mean, Countries in Africa that don't have an MRI are not looking at treating cancer. They're looking at, you know, feeding their population. Um, and so they really struggled with how to support their um, brilliant scientists with this very complex role. Um, and at the same time, they were also looking at how can we create an online environment that would allow us to make the best use of our best practices as we develop them. Um, so we structured a virtual world at the IAEA and I had been doing research on that and mobile learning with them uh, for about, I don't know, six or seven or eight years when the nuclear accident at Fukushima happened. Um, they had the presence of mind um, because 
several of the folks that were uh, at the IAA are also researchers to go and um, gather interview data. Um, some of the physicians that were at Fukushima but were not specialists in a needed area stayed and, and documented and took pictures and, you know, just did a, an amazing job of trying to gather information so that we could learn from this very tragic event. Um, and then they had all this data that they didn't know what to do with. And so I went for uh, four months to uh, Vienna initially to work with the data and make sense of the interviews, which was an interesting journey because um, normally we think of research design upfront. <laughs> yeah. And this was a situation where we were trying to respond to an incident and to data that had been collected and, um, and make sense of it. And, and their goals were driven by recognizing that their previous education system had not worked. They understood that the um, tabletop exercises that they had planned for were not imagining the kind of crisis that they'd had to deal with. And so they were really looking for interdisciplinary work and specifically a science technology society kind of approach to the data. Um, and so, my initial foray into that was to make sense of the stories, the lived stories that, that had been told by the first medical responders who had experienced it. Um, and then at the invitation of the country of Japan and the IEA, um, I had the honor of going and working with these individuals and many of their students on redesigning their curricula so that they would not lose the lessons that were learned in that process. So it was a deeply humbling and um, significant experience in my life. Oh, I can only imagine. And it's so fascinating to hear those stories. And, and as I was listening, I was wondering that you, you have moved in different directions, different places. Was there a skill or a habit that you never thought that you had to learn that in order to be a research, the researcher you are now, that now you realize, yep, this is something that I take with me? Mm -hmm. it, that's a really good question. And, and it is something that I've thought about, Syra, because um, I think one of the first things that happened to me as I moved outside of my own home of education in schools, um, and started thinking about education in professions was that when you are talking to someone outside of your home, as you know, from your work at SARI, you have to be thinking about, you know, why do we do things the way that we do, right? Um, is it just because it's the way we've always done it? Or can we understand it um, more deeply than that? And you know, one of the things that has come up for me is that you so often hear about the theory practice gap. Um, and I would say that for, for me, there can't be a gap. Um, practice informs theory, theory informs practice. It has to be both ways. And it really made me question both what we were thinking about theoretically and also what we were thinking about in practice and how to ensure that those two worlds were constantly in conversation with one another. Um, I, I feel that each brings an expertise that the other uh, doesn't necessarily have. So, I, I mean, I had a fairly substantial professional career in the school system, but I've now been in academia for 21 years. Um, so my experience in practice is outdated. So while I draw on it, I'm also very careful to make sure that I am uh, continually talking to folks who are currently in practice, whatever practice that may be. Right. Uh, and it's such you, the piece that you just said that in the case of the Fukushima nuclear accident, you had to go and work with data that was already collected. Mm -hmm. As a researcher, what did you have to adapt 
to be able to make sense of a data that was you didn't have a design for. Mm-hmm. Because especially by the linear training that we come with, that adaptation process intrigues me. Yeah, so I guess I've always been someone who enjoys playing a little bit with structure and form. And um, I'm curious about what one can help us do in another. Uh, so, you know, we, we often bring uh, methodological approaches together and, mm-hmm. and think about um, how they can inform one another. I started out as a researcher um, doing quantitative research um, and I had really little expertise, uh, experience, or even awareness of what was possible in qualitative until I did my doctoral work. When I had experience with the qualitative, I was fascinated by that. And for a while I did some mixed methods, but um, more recently I have moved, you know, most uh, strongly into just doing qualitative work and playing with different qualitative approaches. Um, in this particular situation, I, I think because of the nature of the stories um, and the severity and the trauma associated with what they had experienced, I really felt that it was important for me to honor that. And so I started talking to colleagues of mine, uh, Nadine Wathen, uh, Susan Roger, who worked in uh, trauma-and-violence-informed care to look at trauma-and-violence-informed education because the story that emerged most profoundly out of Fukushima was not what people were expecting. People were expecting deaths from nuclear radiation. And what the country experienced was uh, severe mental health uh, problems as a result of being displaced from the tsunami, um, as a result of the shame, the deep, deep shame that Japan felt uh, that this happened in their country after you know, their historical experience with nuclear radiation. Um, and, and then you know, the, the re-triggering of all of that trauma again. Um, and, and also the, the brilliance and the strength and the courage of those who stayed and found a way to do what they needed to do in the absence of any kind of coordinated leadership. There were political issues, there were infrastructure issues, there were who owns what portfolio issues, uh, on top of the fact that this spurred an earthquake and took down communication, took out roads and trains, um, took out water, which is the thing that is needed to address the uh, nuclear radiation contamination that was coming into their their uh, hospital. Um, so, you know, the the complexities were um, uh, immeasurable, and yet you had folks who were at the Fukushima Medical uh, Hospital in Fukushima City, um, like the cook, the chief cook in the hospital who had the foresight to think about supplies and immediately cooked up all of the rice that they had on hand and made these rice balls so that they would have food to sustain those that were still in the hospital and that were coming in until new supplies could be brought in. Um, You had um, people who, you know, immediately paired up, we had a a, a young physician, uh, sorry, a young radiation specialist um, who ran to Fukushima into the heart of the disaster so that he could use his skills and expertise to protect the uh, medical team that had stayed um, to address the patients that were coming in. So he set up immediately um, a way of, of trying to keep them safe while they did their work. And what 
the innovation that came out of that was amazing. There was also a deep appreciation for what I was talking about earlier, the, the different skills that all of us hold, right? So physicians were very quick to say, you know, we need to know how to splint and we need to be able to get materials to do some of these things that, you know, our nursing colleagues do or our paramedic colleagues do. And yet that's what was being called on. So there was uh, a relearning and a new learning and a new appreciation for the need for all skills to be present, not one over the other. It, it was just such a, a big learning experience. I, I can tell that throughout all your stories and experiences that are so very vivid and kind of life experiences as a researcher that has stayed with you. Even though research is full of failure and disappointment. And I was wondering about if you have had an unexpected but very gratifying moment in your career. Even though you have learned so much, has there been something that has hit you as, oh wow, that was so, so gratifying and you were not expecting it? I would say much of my career has been unexpected and gratifying, but I will tell you another uh, story. And this one is um, a story that took place in Cambodia. Um, and again, it was a situation where um, patients in Cambodia were not seeking care for cancer treatment um, until it was far too late for any kind of intervention. And there had been multiple efforts to engage um, the world globally in support of their efforts for more cancer care and statistics had been provided numerous times and there was very little movement. And so again, someone on the ground went out and, and talked to um, patients and, and patients' families to try and get a sense of why. Why did you wait? Why are you not seeking care earlier? Um, because some, even some treatable, very treatable cancers were, were left until it was absolutely too late. And so I was asked if I would, you know, do that narrative thing that I do. <laughs> because ma many of the folks that were working in that field did not really understand it. But they said, we want to, we want to understand their experiences in a way that might help others understand their experiences. So, um, so I brought those, those individuals to life. And it was... Uh, again, deeply moving, deeply, deeply moving, being honored with <clears throat> the gift of their stories. Many of them had died when, when I got the data. Um, and uh, the data was all collected in Cambodia by Cambodians. But, you know, here I am, a teacher, uh, being asked to make sense of it. So um, I did a lot of reading about the culture and the belief systems and um, looking at what existed and thinking about, again, the historical trauma of a country who maybe had, um, you know, some breakdown in trust with the, their government or with uh, organizations uh, who had any kind of authority and how that may have played into their decision making. So I had to really educate myself. Uh, as best I could as an outsider um, before even beginning to look at, at their stories and then continually taking it back to the community and, and looking for their insight and, and their valuable feedback. But, um, you know, in part, I don't want to make any broad claim that this is what made the difference, but in part, those stories were shared um, to, to bring to life. What was behind the statistics that had been shared so often. And um, I think it was 2015 when I went back to Cambodia that I was given a tour of a brand new cancer hospital in Phnom Penh that had been built um, because countries had been mobilized to support um, funding that very necessary infrastructure. Um, so, as I said, it's certainly not solely because of that, but if I had a small role to play in that, 
Um, that's that's an ex we talk about impact so often as researchers. To me, that felt like impact, even though I did not publish anything from that work because it felt too um, exploitative for me to 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 do something with it for my own purposes. Um, but uh, I would say that was one that was that will stick with me forever. Fascinating. And how did you end up, uh, I don't remember if you mentioned that, how did you get connected to do that kind of work? So again, that was because of the early work that I did with uh, Rathi Chem, um, who oh. ha had been a physician here in London. He is a Cambodian refugee uh -huh. and um, had invited me to do some work uh, at the Cambodian Resource and Development Institute. Uh, in Cambodia with um, their brand new education team at the time. Their, their team has grown so much uh, since then. They've got several really strong educational scholars that work there now. But, um, you know, that was a special community for me to work in because um, so many teachers, uh, especially, certainly all, if you had an education, you were... Um, targeted and um, in the in the genocide that occurred under the Khmer Rouge. And so they had very few teachers um, that had any, you know, longevity in their country, um, very few elders. Um, and so as a teacher, I felt really moved and motivated to to do some small thing to um, to support their rebuilding of their own programs. It sounded that uh, you haven't met this person, Dr. Sham, I can't, I can't mm -hmm. pronounce it, open up a whole kind of vision for you and different experiences throughout. Absolutely. I did not know him before that initial meeting, but I was fascinated uh, about um, what he had accomplished in his life after fleeing the country at 21, when his own family had been, his parents had both been killed, one of his siblings had been killed. Um, he was put on the last plane that left. He arrived in France with like $50 in his pocket and um, went on to get a medical degree in France, a uh, radiology degree, I believe in California. He did some work in Quebec for a while. And while he was there, he did a um, degree, a PhD in history. Um, and then a subsequent PhD in education and uh, has done all kinds of interesting work with scholars around the world, um, looking at, um, you know, anthropology, dating of mummies, uh, looking at disease from ancient times. It, it's fascinating. It, it is fascinating. And I, I would say that, you know, not just being introduced to him, introduced to him but when I traveled with him for work, um, I was constantly being introduced to people like him who had such an interdisciplinary approach to life and to the way that they took up their own education. And I could see what was possible when we got out of our silos and when we broadened our thinking beyond just the field that we may have specialized in. Uh, I, I just found it energizing. Oh, I'm with you. I just like that line you said about coming out of our silos. is so necessary these days, so fascinating. One more question before you, we end. I want to know uh, what you're working on now, or if you're working on something, what's your next curiosity? Because you seem to have curiosities going. Oh. going. Sure. So, um, you know, as has been the trajectory of my career, I had not intended to be in the associate dean of teacher education role. But in my 60s, it's kind of a nice full circle way to come back uh, to where I began. And I think that the experiences that I've had have really shaped my thinking. Um, but the moment that we're living in right now, I mean, as we're talking today, Syra, uh, in Canada, we've had the horrible uh, news of the 215 uh, children that were discovered buried in Kamloops uh, outside of a residential school. Um, and then within the last couple of days, locally here in London, Ontario, we have been witness to 
um, a hate crime that has uh, killed an entire family with the exception of one young boy who's still in the hospital. Um, and that was a mile from where I live. We heard the sirens. Um, and so in teacher education, um, Black Lives Matter and the work that we've been doing as a university to try to honor the truth and reconciliation um, strategic plan and uh, our colleagues who and students that we work with had, had already motivated us to revisit our curriculum with uh, an equity fo focus, uh, diversity, inclus inclusivity, uh, decolonization, anti-racism, like we're, we're taking a really hard look at what we're doing and how our own system and our infrastructure may be part of the problem. And so when you ask what I'm working on, um, we have taken some big steps this year where we've invited uh, a group of about 23 research interns that include some graduate students, but largely our teacher candidates uh, who are working side by side with us and looking at every course, every micro-credential, the entire structure of our course, our practicum placement assessments through this equity lens and asking ourselves if we're living up to our own aspirations and if we need to be doing something differently. And it's tough work. We've had some difficult conversations, but some necessary conversations. We're not going to achieve it in one year, but we're taking some really big steps um, to getting there. And we've instituted a programmatic uh, research uh, plan in our uh, teacher education program every year that goes way beyond the student questionnaires and takes a deep dive into all of these issues in some really important ways that I think will help teacher education um, take some big steps forward. Um, I, I regret that we have not done this sooner um, because I know the role that education plays in fighting racism and um, and ensuring that, you know, we do create inclusive, um, equitable schools for our students. Um, but all of these things are, are uh, projects that we're working on and that we're researching and that we're thinking about differently. Um, and I'm you know, here we are 16 months into an epidemic of global proportions and a pandemic, I should say. Um, and yet the work that I'm doing with these students has energized me more than I have felt possible at this moment in time. Oh, that's really nice to hear. Kathy, it's been great talking to you before I let you go. A very simple question. I know you have enjoyed your career. You feel very passionate about it. It's an inspiration for me personally to see, like it's kind of the the, this, the, the thing that I aspire to as a, as a researcher. That oh my goodness. That just to say publicly, but I was wondering if you were had not chosen to be a researcher, what do you think you will be doing? Wow. I was never one of these five-year plan people. <laughs> um, never really had time to put those plans in place because I kept saying yes to doors that opened and opportunities that uh, I was um, given, really. Um, and because I'm a learner. So I, I feel that I, I would have been learning in one way or another. <laughs> Um, and probably teaching in one way or another along the way. My kids will tell you I'm always a teacher. Um, <laughs> so it's really hard to say. Um, I, I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the journey that this little life has taken me on. And I hope in some small way that it has um, has been of value to others. Um, but that's not why I went into it. Uh, I think that, you know, we, we are all individuals with our own histories. My, my history included 
finding out as an adult that I was um, both learning uh, learning disabled and gifted. Well, it's the learning disabled part that I'll tell you plagued me more than the gifted part because, you know, I I come into all of these roles and positions feeling uh, a significant uh, uh, amount of gratitude and a significant amount of uncertainty and certainly not confidence in what I'm doing. So um, I guess I've probably always approached things with um, a humility for the opportunity and a desire to to leave the world better than I found it, um, as cliche as that might sound. Um, but, you know, I, I am very well aware of my own privilege and of the learning that I still have to do and that I continue to try to do. And um, I guess I've, I've, if I could say something to someone who might be listening that might not be certain about what pathway they're going to take in their life, um, I come back to Brene Brown and her notion that there's no innovation without creativity and there's no creativity without vulnerability. And so, you know, we have to put our foot in the water, even if it um, isn't going to be comfortable and, and be okay with that and, and honor and, and, you know, acknowledge when we make mistakes, but see them as uh, paths to improvement rather than something to be ashamed of or to worse, uh, be afraid to even take a step. It's so fascinating because uh, you mentioned Brené Brown. A year ago, you and I were having a conversation at your place about different topics and you advised me to read it again. I finished reading that again two days ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the lines that I really like about it this time, because every time you read a book, mm-hmm. it comes, was that idea that don't ask what the world needs. Mm-hmm. Ask what you are passionate about and do it because that's what the world needs. Yes. And and with this conversation, is is bringing that to life mm-hmm. for me personally. So I really appreciate your time, Kathy, and sharing all these stories. Deep thinking, deep wisdom. Totally enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. And to everybody, thank you for listening today. And we'll see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Saira Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.